loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Cynthia Hayes. Cynthia has been preparing her whole life to write her book, The Big Ordeal. She learned the basics of interviewing, synthesizing information, finding the headlines, and telling a story as a journalist early in her career. After a brief interruption to to earn an MBA from Harvard Business School, Cynthia spent 25 years as a management consultant. In that role, success depended on her ability to jump into new topics, ask sensitive questions, understand specialized information, and turn complex findings into a compelling narrative. Shortly prior to her own diagnosis, With cancer, Cynthia resigned from Montefiore Medical Center in New York, where for three years she'd served as vice president and chief marketing officer, focused on telling stories of health and recovery. While at Montefiore, she gained a deeper understanding of medicine and had the opportunity to build relationships with cancer professionals and other experts who helped her write The Big Ordeal. Welcome, Cynthia. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to have you. It's um, your book is just so uh, well. Uh, I've obviously interviewed quite a few people who've written books about cancer of various sorts, and I I really appreciate the depth and the the combination of an understanding of the emotional aspects of cancer and also the science behind those emotional aspects. I learned a lot reading your book. So thank you for that. Well, you're so welcome. And I'm, I'm uh, glad to know that uh, even after all of the work that you have done in this space, that there's still um, more to be learned. Yes, I tend to, because I'm a therapist, I tend to think about the emotional aspects of, of uh, cancer psychologically, for instance. And uh, one thing that really filled uh, with an interest with you know, about the brain and how it works and all that, but mostly just thinking psychologically. So um, getting a little more immersed in the physical properties of those, uh, you know, what's what's actually going on physically was very helpful. So thank you. Um, so let's, let's start with your own story, because obviously you didn't uh, start out saying, I think I'll write a book about how to navigate the emotions of cancer. Um, you, you said you'd been preparing to write it all your life, but I'll bet you weren't planning to write it all your life. So can you, can you share um, your own story and how you came to um, write the book and just, just give us a little bit of background? Sure. Um, you know, when I uh, when I left my job at Montefiore, it was really with the idea of writing the great American novel, um, something I'd been telling myself for way too many years I was going to do. Um, and I had, uh, you know, enjoyed uh, the summer and then gone for a, uh, a regular gynecologic uh, checkup and was walking down the street 
casually on my way to get a manicure and the phone rings and it's my gynecologist's office. And I assumed that it was somebody from the billing uh, department about a, a question about insurance or something like that and sort of nonchalantly answered the call as I continued walking. But I literally stopped dead on the sidewalk when my gynecologist said that there were some um, random cells in my pap smear. I had flunked my pap smear and she needed me to come back in right away. And I sort of listened to what she said, but still, you know, wasn't too worried. And um, I, I was on a mission. I was with my daughter and, and we were going out that night and my nails needed to be red. And so we just sort of <laughs> The really important things, right? <laughs> really red important nails. things in life. <laughs> but, you know, we got to the manicurist and I had just enough time um, before succumbing to the manicurist to Google the type of cells that she said they found on my pap smear. And I was like, oh my God, I've got cancer, I'm gonna die. And in an instant, I was brought into um, the, the emotional turmoil of cancer. Um, I did go back and get an additional uh, test. It confirmed that I had cancer. Um, uh, I had to find a surgeon. I had to you know, plan the whole um, uh, you know, medical care process because my gynecologist wasn't going to be uh, taking care of me going forward. Um, and uh, then ended up having a radical hysterectomy and six months of chemotherapy, and it was it was a challenge, um, no no question about it, physically and emotionally. But it was only when I was maybe uh, three quarters of the way done with chemo, and you know, bald as can be, and have no you know brain function <laughs> happening, and and just felt chemo a total brain mess. is a real thing. Chemo <laughs> brain is say. a real thing. <laughs> chemo brain is a real thing. But I was at the gym and um, you know pedaling about one mile an hour on a bike, and some guy sits down beside me and pedaling twenty miles an hour on his bike um, starts telling me his cancer story. And he sort of said, you know, I felt isolated. I'm thinking, hmm, I felt really isolated. And he said, I felt uh, depressed and anxious. And I'm thinking, hmm, I felt depressed. And the more he talked, the more I felt like, oh, my God, it's not me. Other people <laughs> feel this way when they go through cancer, too. And that got me thinking that, wow, if only we knew at the time of the diagnosis that there was an emotional component to um, the cancer diagnosis and that these emotions are somewhat predictable, that they happen to most people and that it's not you, it's cancer. And that's when I thought, you know what, there's a more important book for me to write than another novel. I need to mm -hmm. help elevate the conversation around the emotional impact of a cancer diagnosis. And that's when I set about interviewing um, over 100 uh, patients and well, identifying those patterns. Cynthia, um, uh, I started the interviews um, in the last month of treatment. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it speaks to two things. One, how, how angelic it was that he reached out that way, because people can hesitate sometimes, but it's so helpful. It is uh, so helpful. And then, um, two, that you're the sort of person who, who um, you know, needs a, needs a direction. Uh, that's pretty quick uh, for finding your direction. I think, yeah. um, to do it as you're coming out of treatment. But I could imagine that maybe helped you somewhat personally with that transition, because I know the transition out of treatment is a big deal. 
the transition out of treatment is a huge deal because after so many months of being the center of attention, everybody who has been supporting you is anxious to get back to their own lives. And of course, you're anxious to get back to your life, but you don't know what your life is anymore. So um, it's a, it's a, a difficult transition for a lot of us um, as uh, we're sort of abandoned by first our medical uh team who says, okay, you're all done with treatment, go back and live your life, and then abandoned by um, our friend and family support team who sort of, you know, wipes our hands of us for a bit and says, well, all right, you're done. Everything's good. Everything's fine. And mm. we're so not Let's done. celebrate. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's celebrate. Well, Cynthia's well. <laughs> it, it's kind of a failure of empathy. I mean, over the years, uh, what it actually means to empathize and what you say to indicate empathy has gotten clearer and clearer to me. And uh, even a simple question like, so how is it sitting with you to be done with treatment? You know, <laughs> just a little more curiosity can help so much a lack of assumption about where someone might be at. Yes, well, I, I think that that's absolutely right, and and I think it's it's a failure of empathy that starts really with a failure of understanding, and I think that in general we're so uncomfortable talking about mental health issues as a society as a whole, and there are there are exceptions and and um, and people who are very comfortable expressing their emotions or asking others about their emotions, but for the most part we're pretty uncomfortable talking about emotional issues and mental health, and so it's easier to assume that there are no issues than to actually ask someone, is there an issue? Are you okay? Yes, I, I agree. And also there's a sense in which uh, people imagine that they will actually cause you to feel bad That's if right. they're not positive, which is, of course, in my mind, the opposite of the truth. But I think there is that kind of phenomenon of I don't want to bring, it's true in grief as well, you know, I don't want to bring up the person because it'll make you feel sad, whatever it is. Of course, the griever is already wherever they're at about it. <laughs> they haven't That's forgotten. Right. Um, so it seems similar to me. I think you're absolutely right. And and I think it, it's unfortunate because um, that that empathy gap actually increases the burden on the the patient or you know whoever is suffering because there's the added burden of needing to um uh be positive um and project something that you're not feeling um mm -hmm. and another hurdle uh of expectations to meet so it it's a challenge you know i've i've run i've facilitated cancer support groups for decades now and uh, a very, very, very common thing that people say, maybe almost a rule, is I needed to join a support group because I can't say these things to anyone. I think that that's so true. And yet, um, uh, often uh, you get to that support group and that can be uh, overwhelming because you're hearing everybody else's um, uh, concerns and worries, and and it can it can exacerbate your own fears to hear somebody else's fears, or to hear somebody in it with a different stage of cancer or in a different phase of the process express their concerns. And so, a lot of people are hesitant to join a support group 
um, for fear that they'll be overwhelmed. And yet often um, it's the best thing in the world because there are people who understand, who get it, who know exactly what you're going through. You know, I really resonate with that. And there's a kind of extreme example that that happened in one of my groups. Obviously over the years, um, many people in the groups I've led have died. But uh, this one particular person knew that that was coming and she called me and she said, maybe I shouldn't come anymore because I don't want to scare people. And, you know, at just the moment when, of course, she needed the support and not to mention, I don't think it helps not to face up to those possibilities. Uh, I once had someone come back to a group after seven years who was in a terribly anxious state as a result of kind of having not come to terms with the possibility of her own death. And um, that's why she came back to the group. Uh, that's just a natural thing to come up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is for sure. Um, but I do think that, you know, people get there on their own time schedules. And of sure, course, absolutely. You know, in a, um, you know, in a, in a loving relationship, you know, there's no guarantee that um, everybody's going to get to the same place at the same time. Um, and it's even harder when there is any sort of a, a communication gap um, between uh, between members of the family or or the the friends and family circle. Um, you know, often as um, a patient or um, somebody going through whatever ordeal it is. Um, you have your fears and your worries and you don't want to project those or even share those onto those around you. Mm -hmm. And those around you have their own fears for you, but also fears for themselves. Absolutely. Um, and so we, we tend not to communicate completely and therefore allow a, a gap to grow um, between us and those that we love. Um, you know, I think, when I got sick, my husband was very concerned for me, um, but he was also concerned for himself. And so when my doctor said, Cynthia is going to be okay, he was relieved. Um, he didn't know that I was still struggling because I was not sure, but mm -hmm. he believed so completely in me and my strength and my perseverance and so completely in my doctor that he was relieved. And so there was a mismatch between what he was feeling for me and what I was feeling for myself. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just remembering my wife, people would say, you're going to be fine. You're strong, right? And she'd say, I know a lot of strong dead people. <laughs> you know, she wouldn't, <laughs> she would not <laughs> harbor that kind of perspective. I, I want to, um, Almost circle back around to the beginning because I'd love for you to share a little bit from the section in your book about diagnosis. You know, I've, I've spoken with so many people who've experienced a cancer diagnosis or been close to someone who has. And, um, you really describe well, I think, um, what everyone experienced experiences to some extent. I interviewed um, Paul Kalanithi's wife. He, he wrote mm -hmm. um, When Breath Becomes Air. He was a neurosurgeon and he blanked out, right? right. <laughs> you know, he, he had the same experience everyone has when they hear that word. So um, yeah. could you share a bit from sure. that section? Sure. You know, I think that for centuries, um, cancer has been a, uh, a death sentence. Um, and 
because we have that history so uh, deeply emblazoned in our minds, when we hear the words, you've got cancer, we assume we're going to die. And that instantly propels us into um, a fight or flight uh, mode um, where Mm -hmm. our hormones, our brain chemistry changes, and we can't help but blank out and not hear what the doctor is saying after that. Um, The adrenaline rush that we get when we hear those words causes the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that is rational, um, to shut down in order to prepare us to, you know, run away from the lion or, you know, whatever that that historic threat would have been. Um, And that just makes it so hard to get beyond those words. Um, And of course, with earlier detection and um, uh, improvements in uh, in treatment, cancer isn't a death sentence. Um, It is a complicated and um, long um, diagnosis and treatment process that for many of us leads ultimately to an untimely death, but for many of us leads to um, maybe a chronic disease or maybe a a full recovery. Um, But still, we hear that death sentence, and that's uh, why we all panic and why we get into that fight or flight mode. Mm Mm-hmm. Do do you want to share that that part from the introduction that that relates to that um, that moment? Um, or I could read it if you. Yeah, want. sure. You go, why don't you yeah. go ahead? You have- no one expects expects a cancer diagnosis, but that element of surprise, that jolt out of nowhere, becomes a defining factor in how we experience cancer, setting us up for the cascade of emotions the disease and its treatments will provoke in the weeks, months, and years to come. As unexpected as the diagnosis might be, the roller coaster of emotions that follows is actually somewhat predictable. Instant panic and fear of death give way to stress, anxiety, feelings of isolation, and depression. These affect patients' quality of life, hindering their adherence to treatment and often interfering with physical recovery. Angst and fear of recurrence remain constant companions for several years until either one achieves physical recovery, passing the magical five-year mark and eventually regaining emotional health, or the cancer returns, bringing with it anger, denial, guilt, demoralization, and sometimes acceptance of the inevitable. Of course, our personal histories, DNA, diseases, and treatments influence how we internalize and express our emotions, but the patterns are far more common than we might expect. Nearly 70% of patients report feeling stress and anxiety. Up to 60% experience fatigue, cognitive issues, or both during and after treatment. 16% of patients face major depression, and 10% experience post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, an aside, that's, that's a little bit more than PTSD overall, which is at about seven. So that's interesting to me. In the crunch for time with their patients and with a primary focus on eliminating the disease, medical professionals avoid emotional topics, dance gingerly around them, or stomp on patients' psyches without realizing the impact of their words. I would say an example was how you got the news. (laughs) Not a good way to get the news. 
Given the cultural stigma associated with mental illness and emotional problems, we don't always feel comfortable raising the topic with our physicians or know to seek support from the social service programs available, meaning that few of us who are newly diagnosed with cancer receive any psychological support. True in my experience, um, because I get it on the other end, people that do find their way to a group spend a great deal of their time in the group talking about the medical profession and what what the ways that they're being met and unmet. And honestly, it has a radically predictable effect on how people actually navigate cancer whether they're getting sensitive psychological treatment or not from their healthcare providers. Let's, let's go to a break and come back and talk about that a little more afterwards. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Cynthia Hayes, go to thebigordeal.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Cynthia Hayes about her own cancer experience and the book she wrote to support others going through it called The Big Ordeal. And Cynthia, before the break, we were um, referring to uh, the the kind of impact um, our medical professionals have on the cancer experience. Um, honestly, if I am ever diagnosed with cancer, 
number one on my list of qualifications for my healthcare professional would be bedside manner and then down from there. <laughs> because obviously you want someone very capable, but it makes such a difference in people's experience, doesn't it, to have sensitive uh, really, medical care. Really, yeah, it really does. And of course, um, we often don't know um, as we are seeking care, um, exactly how we're going to fit with the doctors that we choose. And sometimes our primary care doctor or the doctor who makes the initial diagnosis recommends somebody and we feel compelled to go with that doctor. Other times it's not clear who the right expert is and we might shop around for a while. Mm -hmm. But that that personal rapport is so important, not just because of um, feeling supported uh, by your doctor uh, when they have good bedside manner, but because in order to get the best care, you really need to advocate for yourself, and so you need to be comfortable asking questions and um, and engaging your doctor in conversation, not just about your physical symptoms, but about your emotional response as well. And doctors don't necessarily think to ask. Us about our emotions or feel that it is their job to ask us about their emotions, especially in this, this day and age where doctors are so specialized. Um, right, but in order sure. to make sure that we are getting the care that we need, it's our job to, uh, to advocate for ourselves. And that requires that we have a good rapport with the, uh, the people who are taking care of us. I hope this, this um, becomes more and more a topic within the medical community. And, and I want to say, I know many incredible healthcare practitioners. I'm not, I'm not uh, bumping the whole profession here, but um, I, I did some training with a program called Calm, Managing Cancer and Living Meaningfully. And um, one of the things they talked about in the training was that it actually saves time for a physician to pay attention to those things. Because when they don't, it creates more anxiety. Um, it's been actually well studied that people um, call the doctor more. Um, mm -hmm. In the end, end up asking more anxious questions um, than if they have that confidence that that their well being is being being cared for. So it it definitely helps on every score. Uh, including um, saving the time of the practitioners. That's, <laughs> that's absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. You, you, I can prove it by you for sure, right? Yeah, I absolutely. had a recent, a recent, this is a, a very minor experience of this, but I had a not too serious skin issue. And I went to, during pandemic, a dermatologist online and all this, and she offered all of this stuff and I felt completely unconfident, but I didn't go back because pandemic. <laughs> and right. so I recently went to someone new. I had decided to ditch her, but it turned out she'd left my healthcare system. And I, the person I ended up seeing spent a lot less time with me than she had. And yet I felt completely better about it. <laughs> and it was, it was, all of these things we're talking about. And imagine that's like a minor skin thing, right? right <laughs> so exactly. if someone is facing cancer, it's even more radically important just to feel you're being heard, your questions have room, all of those things that um, have been proven to be, to be yes. effective. So for yourself, 
Um, you know, pretty dire diagnosis. I'm guessing you're an action-oriented person. I'll bet you're in a hurry to get going. Uh, how did that process go for you of, of choosing someone to administer your care and of choosing the care for that yeah. matter? Yeah, and and that was a that was an interesting time for me. My gynecologist, who had delivered my two children, who are now twenty eight and thirty, um, you know, she was a long term friend and caregiver. Um, she recommended a doctor I did not like, um, and I didn't like him because he didn't make eye contact with me. He was telling me about <laughs> the laparoscopic surgery he was going to do, and was very focused on his screen and his technology, not focused on me as the patient. Um, but because of my um, connections in the in the medical field, I was able to get a recommendation for another doctor. Um, and uh, and this doctor was actually in the same hospital, but had a a, such a warmth and, and caring uh, approach to cancer um, and was able to look me in the eye and tell me, you know, we're going to take care of you. We're going to work things out. Uh, let's, you know, start by taking a deep breath and, you know, assuring me that, you know, yes, it was um, a scary cancer, but I'm you know, we're going to do the surgery. It doesn't have to be done tomorrow. I had uh, plans um, to join my uh, my two uh, kids and uh, some cousins, and my husband and I were all going uh, wine tasting for a weekend up in Napa Valley um, a few days after my diagnosis. And I was like, "Well, well, do I go?" And he said, "Of course, you go. You go, and you drink an extra glass of wine, and when you come <laughs> back, we'll deal with this." <laughs> and and of course, that made all of the oh, difference. What and, a jewel! You know, <laughs> yeah, what a jewel. <laughs> and, you know, and he took my hand and he looked me in the eye while he talked to me about what it was we were going to do. Um, and that was just such a, a, a comforting contrast to the first doctor. And of course, you don't know exactly what you're dealing with until they cut you open and they, you know, take out the cancer and they can, um, uh, you know, do the the DNA analysis of the cancer and they can check the lymph nodes and make sure that they're, you know, the cancer hasn't spread or whatever. So it, it it's not even a full reassurance uh, on the day you have sure, uh, surgery not. or the day you get the pathology report back from, from the surgery. But his approach was so reassuring that each piece as it came in became more and more comforting over time. I did I have a, a question about, you know, what, what protocol he right. was saying, let's just do um, chemotherapy. Um, a couple of uh, institutions um, were suggesting for my um, high grade cancer that uh, radiation was also necessary. I was scared of radiation more than I was scared of chemo. Um, I was very glad when he said, let's just try the chemo. And uh, if we need to, if it comes back, we'll do the radiation then. Um, so it, it was a tricky decision. And I am one who wants all of the information in order to make a decision. But ultimately, his, uh, his mannerisms and uh, warmth and caring approach were what won, won me over. It's interesting what you're bringing up. I'm remembering, um, of course, I'm remembering my wife's cancer a lot today because, you know, I have resonance with all these different um, stages of the of the uh, navigation. But I'm remembering when there was a treatment decision to be made, and her oncologist recommended a particular treatment. At the time, her illness didn't have a hard and fast protocol. Mm -hmm. um, it it was in the midst of a of a proliferation of new information. 
And and I don't remember if she said or I said, what is leaning you towards that? What, mm-hmm. Why are you picking that? And he said, it just feels right. Yeah. Now, that's not something doctors always feel comfortable to say. It was so comforting. Right. Because it meant that he was using his strong intuition as a person in that field to take our best shot. It wasn't even that he could guarantee at the time he couldn't get guarantee it would work. <laughs> People were, right. you know, dying quickly of what she had. But there was something about him being present in that way that was just so, so helpful, even in a situation where she might die. We wanted to feel we'd done everything that we could. Right. Right. And, and of course, that's, you know, that's the challenge. And, and, you know, medicine is an art as much as it is a science. And, um, you know, even if the protocol is X, uh, sometimes, you know, X minus or X plus makes more sense um, when you're looking at the patient and you're seeing what you're dealing with. And, and I think one of the hardest things for um, people who are not, um, uh, you know, steeped in, in cancer is, you know, you look at, um, the, the diagnosis, you know, if you go to Dr. Google or, you know, even if you go to med, uh, 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 PubMed and look at professional articles, there's a lot of scary information out there. And you have to remember that um, the science is um, historic. Um, you know, by the time somebody has come up with a, uh, a, a test, a, a research uh, proposal to see if this protocol or that protocol uh, works better, um, and then done the testing over a period of three, five, ten years, and then written up and gotten that study published, the science has moved way beyond that. So, <laughs> I so, know. You know my, son, at my son-in-law's in a cancer mirror. researcher. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, we're looking at things in the rearview mirror and sometimes they appear closer than they really are. (laughs) It moves faster than, it's a slow moving thing that's also moving fast. It's quite something um, to to notice. Since we're talking about starting treatment and making those decisions, could you share a bit from uh, the third chapter, Life Out of Balance, Submitting to Care, which I like, Submitting to Care. Uh, We make our choices, right? It's not just a submission, but it does feel as if maybe because most people are feeling well when they start uh, cancer treatment, not everybody, but many people. And so you're kind of submitting to feel terrible when you don't already. So that's right. Like and, that. and you are, right you are there. giving yourself over to a new boss because giving you're, yourself you're, over indeed. your treatment protocol is dictated by, um, you know, whatever the science has determined makes the most sense. And your doctor is wanting to apply and you don't necessarily get to choose any of that. So let me read to you from Life Out of Balance, Submitting to Care. And I start with a quote from Francis Assisi, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. Beginning cancer treatment, whenever the first step might be, often brings a sense of relief. You know that finally someone will be dealing with the cancer that has kept you sleepless for so many nights, but that relief is also tinged with anxiety and fear. Like stepping over the edge into an abyss, you are headed into the unknown. 
what exactly is going to happen to my body when they start? What will they discover when they cut me open? How will I respond to chemo? Will radiation cause a burn? Will I be able to tolerate immunotherapy? With more than 500 var varieties and combinations of therapies and the accelerating uh, rate at which new medications are being approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, there can be no blanket statements about the likely side effects of cancer treatment. Add to that the unpredictable and individualized responses we all have to medications of any sort, and it can be hard to anticipate what you might feel. Advances in how treatment is delivered have taken some of the sting out of it for many patients. Uh, laparoscopy, which uses multiple small incisions and a miniature camera to allow the surgeon to see inside the patient without making a large incision, has become the preferred method for many cancer surgeries, which reduces recovery time and the pain of surgery. The addition of anti-nausea medication, antihistamines and steroids to chemo infusions has lessened the propensity for vomiting and other extreme responses. Reduced and targeted radiation has decreased the frequency of radiation burns and adverse effects. Immunotherapies, which stimulate the patient's own immune cells to recognize and fight cancer cells, and targeted therapies, which work by destroying cells with specific cancerous mutations, cause few or no side effects for some lucky patients. Still, we are a long ways away from having the precision medicine of the future where doctors will be able to sequence the DNA of every patient's healthy and cancerous cells to determine exactly which remedy will provide the cure with the least misery. And most of us still will undergo at least one of the more toxic treatments. Uncertainty about the, uh, the coming experience, coupled with our continued anxiety about the efficacy of treatment and our prospects for recovery, make this a stressful time for many cancer patients. While loved ones and medical experts try to reassure us that we will get through, often what we feel is a sense of existential dread and the isolation that comes with the believing we are alone in our fears. As Jane M. said, it would be very difficult for anyone who isn't going through it to understand. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm struck by the uh, massive change in that area from when my wife died, which was 1995, so 25 years ago. Um, just the last few years of when she was being treated, the uh, anti-nausea medications um, came more into use, made a huge difference. Uh, it does. And, and steroids, um, you know, all kinds of things that that um, she didn't have ac access to at the beginning of those uh, eight or ten years. By the end, we're already starting to make a big difference. But most of us have an overlay of uh, of a kind of cultural... Um, assumption about cancer treatment. And it's true that some people do experience it that way, but so much few, fewer these days. But I think the, uh, the general idea about it hasn't changed as much as the reality has. I think that's right. And, you know, that's not to say that we don't get queasy and that's not to say that there aren't side effects to the things that they're giving us to diminish the side effects. Um, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Like most people don't like to sleep all day every day and, you know, for instance, <laughs> that's that, right. right? <laughs> that's right. It's a big interruption well, of life. I'm not saying it's nothing by any means. I'm just <laughs> saying it's, it is different than it was when she, when she first started. Yes, exactly. Let's take, let's take our second break and we'll come back and, and talk more about that.
Terrific. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page at Voice America to find links to everything about me, including my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Cynthia Hayes, you can go to thebigordeal.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Cynthia Hayes, the author of The Big Ordeal. And, uh, you know, one thing that I appreciate so much about your book, and, and I'm guessing that listeners can, can um, pick this up from our conversation, just so much detail about the things that impact people in the process of living with cancer. Um, uh, just segment by segment, you know, um, from beginning to end and dealing with the variability that some people, for instance, do um, have to deal with the fact that their lives are in ending. Um, there's the period of testing and monitoring. I, I feel you just went into such wonderful detail about the different phases. And what I was aware of was that um, people who are facing cancer do not experience it particularly line- linearly. And yet there are phases in it that can be identified that have different solves emotionally. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that we don't necessarily appreciate going into cancer um, and perhaps never appreciate um, coming out of cancer is that so much of what we experience is actually um, a result of changes to our body chemistry because we have cancer or because of the various treatments that we're taking. Um, I learned a lot about um, a class of proteins called uh, cytokines, which we may have heard about recently in the news related to uh, COVID and and cytokine storms. The cytokines are proteins that allow our immune systems to communicate um, throughout the body. And they're pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and they want to be in balance. But 
if you get a paper cut, the pro-inflammatory cytokines go to the site of that paper cut and say, oh, hey, we've got an opening here. Let's get some platelets to close this up. Let's get some mm-hmm. white blood cells over here to get rid of that infection. And so Activate sort of, the troops. Yeah, activate the troops. They are <laughs> I don't usually like traffic. military metaphor, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but it it's appropriate. A here. <laughs> it's appropriate. And when, when the paper cut is healed, then the anti-inflammatory cytokines go and they say, okay, go back to, you know, go back to your bases. Let's get out of here. Um, we're done. Our job is done here. And, and try to bring things back into homeostasis. Well, so it turns out that the presence of cancer in the body causes an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines. Mm. Surgery, I mean, a paper cut causes pro-inflammatory cytokines. Imagine what a massive surgery does. Um, yeah. So does chemotherapy. So does radiation therapy. So uh, some of the immunotherapies are actually cytokine therapies. So we become awash in pro-inflammatory cytokines. You get too many pro-inflammatory cytokines running around in your body and your brain perceives that as uh, a major threat. And um, uh, one neuroscientist uh, referred to it as sickness behavior and the brain interprets it as I need to go back to bed and throw the covers over my head because that's the only way I'm dealing with this. So we have these chemical changes going on. You know what? Dexamethasone, which they give us as part of most of our chemo infusions, that's a steroid and it changes the hormone balance in our body. Um, Many cancer treatments um, include uh, hormone suppressant um, uh, drugs. Um, Sometimes our surgeries radically change our uh, hormonal structure by removing uh, hormone um, producing organs. So there are so many chemical changes going on and all of those chemical changes in our body lead to the emotional experience um, of cancer patients. So I like to say it's not it's not you, it's cancer. It's cancer, cancer is causing and, these these emotional changes. Uh, amen to that. I also feel as if some people are much better at, at um, keeping that in mind than others. Uh, I'm remembering a time when my wife was on, uh, I think it was actually dexamethasone and she was hallucinating. Yeah. And um, she was able, she had a talent for being able to observe uh, things while they were happening and she was very aware that it was the drug and it helped a lot. She didn't get freaked out, you know. Yeah. She just yeah. said, "Wow, I'm having a really epic, you know, visual experience that I know isn't real." Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that was that. It didn't linger because she was clear uh that it that it was treatment related and I yes. I think that was very very helpful. So, um just getting the word out there that that in fact uh, not everything is psychological. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. We, we experience it as psychological, but That's some right. of it is, is, uh, is chemically induced. I know for me, the dexamethasone was, you know, a great high for, uh, you know, 24, 48 hours. But then when it finally left my body, I had a major, you know, emotional crash and I would be weepy and, and, you know, feel terrible. And then the next day, oh, okay, fine. I can deal with this. Um, Absolutely. And, and that's it very until, individual too, isn't it? It's, uh, it's very individual. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until I made the connection that it was the chemicals leaving my body that I was able to say, oh, okay, so I know that on Monday I'm going to be weepy again. 
Just yeah. pay no attention to me and my tears. <laughs> I may just go cry all day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wash, wash myself off. <laughs> and so then, obviously, in one hour, we cannot cover the entire experience. We're get, we're, <laughs> some people think an hour is a long time. I would say it's, it's short for this experience, for sure. Um, but at some point, we are... Um, Moving, moving forward in one way or another, hopefully. Uh, I find some people are better at, at the forward motion at the end of treatment than others. Um, ha I've had the experience of that being a struggle for many people, but let's just say you're, you're trying to incorporate a new normal. Um, can you share something from the book about that process? Because honestly, that's the time in people's cancer experience uh, there are two times that I find the most um, challenging. One is diagnosis, um, the, the period of diagnosis before treatment, and the other is the period when treatment stops. That's right. And, and sometimes it can take a long time for the body to stabilize and reestablish homeostasis before we actually get to the emotional recovery um, of accepting and, and somehow dealing with life uh, afterwards. But let me read uh, a little bit from chapter nine, the new normal, when it's safe to resume life. And I start with a quote from Maya Angelou saying, I could be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. And that's important um, because there's so much that we can do with our experience. Um, the heart of this show. <laughs> if I had to put sum it up into one sentence, it would it would sound very much like that. <laughs> well, thank you, Maya Angelou, for putting it so well. <laughs> At some point, we move on. We heal physically and emotionally and resume our lives. Some of us quietly slip back into our old lives, barely registering a ripple. Some of us are aware of changes in perspective and values as we return to our old lives. And some of us structure entirely new lives, like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Regardless of how life may have outwardly changed, 50 to 80% of people with a history of cancer report some added value in their lives as a result of their cancer experiences. These benefits range from strengthened interpersonal relationships to improved clarity of and commitment to life priorities, increased attention to health, renewed spirituality, a feeling of personal strength, uh, and appreciation for one's health, family, friends, and a life no longer taken for granted. While scientists don't fully understand the drivers behind who feels the greatest impact and why, it appears that the strength of the perceived threat and the magnitude of the disruption cancer caused influences the reaction. And the more actively one has focused on coping, the more likely one is to feel some growth or benefit from the experience. It also seems to help if you had social support while coping with your ordeal. And that uh, social support is just so important. My goodness, we all go through this experience feeling isolated and alone, and yet there are tremendous resources out there to help us if only we know to ask for them. And if only we have, obviously there are some resources available that do not cost money, but they all cost time. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of some, some clients I've had who <clears throat> who had to keep uh, working and had, you know, for financial reasons, they didn't 
actually have time to develop their support communities or figure out how to make more room to need things because of course our culture is is pretty averse to needing anything until something like this comes along yes absolutely so that's that's worth many many shows and i've done many shows about it the the absolutely um huge impact of whether you feel supported or not and whether you've got someone listening to your experience or not i th i think that really helps people move forward when when they know they're being registered in what they're going through yeah, that's so true and you know for many people a support group is not the answer because it, it can be overwhelming to hear from so many absolutely uh, people with different experiences but sometimes a one-on-one -on -one, uh, mentor is just the right thing someone who has been through your particular type of cancer before and can not only validate your experience but also help um, prepare you for what's ahead. Um, I know uh, there are organizations like uh, Ammerman Angels and Cancer Hope Network that will um, match anyone with any type of cancer with somebody who has had a similar experience. And then there are organizations focused on particular types of cancer, um, such as uh, for ovarian cancer, Teal or Share, um, or a fabulous organization, Share Share It. Um, another one, Cancer Support Community. So many fabulous resources. But again, stupid we need cancer. To know. Stupid <laughs> cancer. Yeah. 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 I Elephant like the name of that organization, so I had yes. to mention it. <laughs> and you do have a, a nice um, list of organizations for people at the back of your book. So I want to mention that. That um, it's a tremendous resource. And I agree, not everyone wants to be in a cancer support group. I have no agenda, <laughs> that's for sure. It's very right for some people. And if it's wrong for people, it's not the place to be, right? Um, but that's part of, honestly, why I really appreciate doing um, doing interviews about facing cancer, because I, even overhearing someone like you talking about um, you know, the impact on your life and the things that help in navigating it and the reality of it. It's hard and, and we and we put one foot in front of the other because it is such a kind of panicky realm. So, um, you know, that's that can be a big support. I know that's true with grief in this show. I've met many people who, who listened um, without ever telling anyone they were listening just to hear other people getting through what they were going through. So yes. I'm glad I, I got to have you on to, and I hope people will go uh, find the book, particularly people who are either going through it themselves or someone close to them is because uh, having people around you educate themselves is so helpful, not feeling you have to educate everybody. That's absolutely right. And the book is written uh, for uh, cancer patients and their love and caregivers. Uh, so yes, uh, by all means. Well, Cynthia, I really appreciate having had you today and, you know, obviously scratching the surface, but uh, I think um, I think it's clear you have a lot to offer. So thanks for being with me. Well, thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. It's been a pleasure talking about this. And uh, You're welcome. Next week, I'll have Reed Peterson, creator of the app Grief Refuge. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.